This is KZSU Stanford. Warning. The FDA has determined that this radio program, entitled Opinions, contains a potent mind-altering substance. Its effects include increased awareness, mental lucidity, and expansion of consciousness. The program's exchange of ideas is addictive. Most worrisome of all, this narcotic is free of charge. Entitled Opinions is not the pill your mother gives you. It's the pill your mother takes when you're not around. That's right. This is the show your mother turns to when she wants to turn on and rise above the mundane prose of her existence. Mothers, too, like to levitate in the rarefied air we breathe on this program, the ether of ideas. Up here, we are stoned immaculate. Up here, our heads are fed by the bread of angels. Up here, our arrows are made of desire. Up here is where the gods make love. Did I hear someone mention the gods making love? Since the FDA has now classified entitled opinions as a narcotic, we decided to honor that label today by doing a show on drugs. Drugs of the mind-altering variety, like mescaline, LSD, opium, and hashish. Drugs that, for a brief moment, have the power to put you in touch with the divine before they send you down to the darker angels. I can't think of a better place to start than with a passage from Baudelaire's Les Paradis Artificiels or Artificial Paradises from the mid-19th century. 
I quote, your innate love of shape and color find an immense pasture in the first developments of your intoxication. Colors will take on an unaccustomed vigor and enter your brain with an all-conquering intensity. The paintings on the ceiling will be endowed with a startling vivacity. The coarsest wallpaper on the walls of inns will gain in depth, producing splendid dioramas. Nymphs with dazzling flesh gaze at you with wide eyes, deeper and more limpid than the sky and the water. Characters from antiquity attired in their priestly or military costumes exchange solemn confidences with you at a mere glance. The sinuous curving of outline is a language now finally made clear in which you can read the agitation and the desires of people's souls. Fourier and Swedenborg, the one with his analogies, the other with his correspondences, have become embodied in the vegetable or animal forms that your gaze alights on, and instead of divulging their teachings in words, they indoctrinate you by shape and color. The totality of beings in the universe rises before you with a new and hitherto unsuspected glory, grammar. Arid grammar itself becomes something like an evocative sorcery. Words rise from the grave, clothed in flesh and bones, the substantive in its substantial majesty, the adjective, a transparent garment which clothes and colors it like a glaze, and the verb, the angel of movement, which sets the sentence in motion. Music speaks to you of yourself and narrates the poem of your life. It becomes of one body with you, and you melt into it. It expresses your passion, not in a vague and indefinite way as it does on those evenings you spend lolling at the opera, but in a detailed, positive way, every moment in the rhythm indicating a movement familiar to your soul, every note transforming itself into a word, and the whole poem entering your brain like a dictionary endowed with life. I have a guest with me in the studio who is eminently entitled to comment on this poem, Entering Your Brain Like a Dictionary Endowed with Life. Her name is Michaela Holstein. Michaela earned her Ph.D. in French literature from Stanford in 2016, and she's now a lecturer in the Structured Liberal Education Program here at Stanford, otherwise known as SLE. Her dissertation goes by the title, Unselfing Interpreted, Altered States and the Ethics of Insight. Michaela has published on altered states and drug experimentation among French writers, among others. And she joins me today to talk about Charles Baudelaire, Thomas de Quincey, Henri Michaud, as well as psychedelic drugs in the counterculture of the 1960s. Dr. Hulstein, Michaela, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Your dissertation, which you're currently revising for publication as a book, has that word unselfing in the title. And one of the forms of unselfing you're interested in is experimentation with mind-altering drugs, right? That's right. And I've quoted Baudelaire at length on the effects of hashish, so why don't we start with him maybe. What do you know about Baudelaire's use of drugs and his attitude towards hashish and opium when it comes to what you call unselfing? Yeah, so I think the... The difficult thing to understand uh, with Baudelaire as regards intoxicants or altered states is what he maybe means by artificiel. So why are these artificial paradises? 
And it's it's hard to understand because he's speaking in this moralist mode. It's Baudelaire speaking as a moralist, saying you shouldn't take hashish in parts of, of the work that you quoted. So the um, the text, Les Paradis Artificiels, was developed from his 1851 text on wine and, and hashish, and he added to it later by 1860 his his uh, translation of De Quincey, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. So in that uh, first text from, uh, from 1851, he was already trying to distinguish between the drunkenness that comes from wine, and it has these social virtues, and the drunkenness or the intoxication that comes from hashish, and he, he talks about it as an antisocial pleasure. So this has been read in lots of different ways, and I think some lean more towards um, an aesthetic interpretation of what's wrong with the with these paradises, and others towards a more literal examination of of what drug he's he's using. Um, but it, it does seem strange to us today that he thinks that hashish is more dangerous than opium, and ultimately he leans towards a a religious explanation. So he thinks that hashish falsely satisfies this desire for the infinite, le goût pour l'infini, and closes the gap between man and le mal in this problematic way. So it stops man from questioning, stops man from thinking. He has a section of this work called God Made Men. So because of this auto-divination, he thinks that hashish is to be avoided. Do you take him to be speaking for himself a la lettre in, in, in this work, or is he highly conscious of the, his audience reaction and therefore maybe is camouflaging a little bit his uh, his attitude towards hashish? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's... One, one thing that I think is fascinating about this is the distance between what he's saying as a moralist and the rhapsodic way that he talks about hashish. So in the in the passage that you read, he talks about the correspondences and the things that are revealed and this heightened state of awareness. And obviously he's very interested in synesthesia and correspondence. So he seems to be writing an eloge of of hashish, but but then it's curious that then he says, no, 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 this is this is a bad thing. So it would seem like it's all great if it were not artificial. Yeah. It would seem that. On the other hand, as you said, this goût de l'infini, this taste for the infinite, the raising of consciousness, this touching of the divine, if only momentarily before you're cast down when the drug wears off, all that seems to be part of what he calls ideal in his poet in Les Fleurs du Mal, which distinguishes between spleen and ideal. And ideal is that state of transport, uh, inspiration, perhaps even ecstasy, or certainly intoxication with the infinite. So you would think that this should be an eloge. Do you find that when he's praising the virtues of wine, that he can really stand behind what he says there about the virtues of drunkenness through alcohol, which, of course, um, you know, Baudelaire is well known as, mm-hmm. as being the champion of dandyism, and the dandy as the hero of, in a banal kind of vulgar bourgeois world. and But the dandy is someone who is in perfect control of himself, mm-hmm. herself, highly aesthetic. And the, the kind of drunkenness that would come from alcohol would seem to be antithetical to the dandy's mm-hmm. posture of perfect self-composure. No? Mm-hmm. 
I'm, so how do you relate to his um, attempt to champion wine, Is it, the social virtues of wine? Was it something that he means seriously? I think for for him, it's it's connected to the culture and the ritual surrounding these intoxicants. So he was a drinker. He was a moderate user of hashish. He didn't really partake as much as others in the Club des Achichins. And he was a longtime opium user. So I think he his ideas about about wine or about opium or about the poetic will are really fleshed out and i think he's pretty disdainful of the superficial culture surrounding the usage of hashish at the club des hashishans so i think he's a little bit skeptical of this superficial or uh, momentary project to reach the the infinite um, as opposed to the the poetic will to get there can you say something more about the Club des Hachichins and the Hotel Pimodan where these uh, experiments were taking place? Yeah, so all of these intellectuals in, in Paris would get together at the Club des Hachichins. So people like Balzac or Nerval, uh, Baudelaire was there, would would take hashish together. Um, and it's this was influenced by the, the history of, of Orientalism. So Moreau wrote a text on... Uh, the the effects of the alienation effects of hashish that was pretty influential and widely read, and these these intellectuals, these writers, these artists would get together and uh, take hashish, usually in the form of what Moreau called dawa mask, so this green jelly had was mixed with cinnamon, and they would then recount their experiences or detail their experiences together. So this is different than a lifetime of addiction to opium that alters the way that Baudelaire arguably thinks about things like analogy or desire or the infinite. This was more of a social uh, gathering. So that's an important thing that you mentioned, that Baudelaire had a long addiction to opium, Mm -hmm. which is not the same drug as hashish. What caused him to get addicted to that drug? I don't think it's entirely clear. He was suffering from syphilis for a large part of his life, so there's some evidence that he was taking this as a sort of medication, maybe to, to counteract the negative effects of other medication he was taking. But he was uh, addicted to laudanum, or he was taking opium for long parts of his life, and this has uh, this affected his his aesthetic theories too. Do you think Les Fleurs du Mal, his great collection of poems Mm -hmm. uh, would have been possible had he never attempted the um, experimentation with drugs? Would he have been the same poet he he was without it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he thinks that you can get to this state of revelation, intoxication without any Right. He speaks about, yeah, he speaks about virtue being Mm -hmm. an intoxicant, poetry, Mm -hmm. and other things, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, E.S. Burt, she has an article about this, and she thinks that this is a text about analogies. So ultimately, the drugs helped him to flesh out his theory of of correspondences, the uh, the doubleness of of symbols and uh, their reference. And so, what the problem with hashish is that 
it's ultimately all nature. So there's no spiritual in in this analogy. You can see this in the the part of the text where he's he's writing about the poem of hashish. So he's talking about the different dreams that you have and the natural dreams. But those are the ones that are hashish dreams, and you don't you don't exceed nature. It's um, just this false sense of spirit. Whereas in opium dreams, you can get to this infinite or this spiritual realm, but the way she reads it is that these are ultimately all substitutions and, and trying to talk about analogy, whereas you can you can find a, a reading of Baudelaire that attributes everything that he does, including the things that he writes, to his addiction. So I, I tend to follow more of, um, of the former reading, that I think that this is, for him, all about poetic inspiration. And that distinction you refer to between the effects of hashish being confined to the natural mm-hmm. opium actually transcending into Mm -hmm. the spiritual, supernatural, if you want to use that term, he would have to have some sort of measure or criterion in order to come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And he would have to have had a pre-existing experience of the divine or the infinite, le goût de l'infini, which I believe goes back to his um, immersion in the Catholic tradition and its mm-hmm. sacraments and so forth is the idea that he had some kind of mystical mm-hmm. uh, experiences in his youth within the purely religious context of Catholicism that served as his certification mm-hmm. for what maybe opium can approximate in terms of inducing mm-hmm. artificially some sort of uh, experience of the divine. Mm -hmm. Because without it, I don't know how he would be able to say that one is far from the real thing and the other one gets close to the real thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I'll read his... This is from a letter that he wrote to Flaubert. So he sent a a copy of Les Paradis Artificiels to Flaubert, introducing him to De Quincey. Flaubert has said, you've insisted too much on the spirit of evil. Catholicism is pushing through. He said, this is a great text. Thanks for introducing me to De Quincey. He's fascinating, but you're insisting too much on Catholicism. So Baudelaire says in response, I realized that I had been continually obsessed by an inability to accept certain of man's deeds or actions without the hypothesis that malevolent powers external to himself of themselves intervene. Even were the 19th century in league against me, I would not retract this significant admission. So it's hard to, as you said, it's hard to imagine... Baudelaire without the le mal, as it were. I think so, yeah. And le mal is is just the counterpart of, of le divin or the divine. Mm-hmm. No? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Thomas de Quincey, and he translated parts of the Confessions of an English Opium Eater, which in my view is one of the great prose texts of English literature of the 19th century. It's uh, remarkable. Very strange hybrid genres. There's autobiography, mm-hmm. there's the, the, the medical uh, diagnosis, there's also metaphysical speculation. Mm-hmm. Can you um, speak a little bit about Thomas de Quincey and his importance for Baudelaire, but also de Quincey just on his own? Yeah, he. so he was born in 1785 in Manchester, and the text that you mentioned, uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, was originally published in 1821 in London Magazine, and the, the year after it appeared in book form. Uh, and so the text, as you mentioned, it's it's a hybrid genre. It, it's a confessional, of course, so it, it looks back to Rousseau and Augustine, 
And it's filled with these literary allusions. So he was um, an excellent student of Greek and Latin, and he left Oxford during his exams in 1808. He never received his degree, and he was homeless for a long time. He was squatting in a house with another homeless girl and had all these severe pains, probably from malnourishment. Um, He had all these toothaches, and he had done a lot to try to relieve his chronic pain. And at some point, a friend recommended opium, And he attaches a mystic importance to this event, this friend recommending opium to help uh, solve his stomach pain, his toothaches. And after that, what comes with not only the alleviation of pain is this revelation. So he writes this work detailing his, his life, not only his life story, but his relationship to opium. And it has this sort of sensational quality because he... He, he claims that he frets about exposing himself and what he calls gratuitous acts of self-humiliation. So he's kind of, it's a dig at Rousseau. He's saying he doesn't want to do that. But he, it, it's, it's clear that he wants to tell this story as well. Does he have a Baudelairean attitude that sometimes opium can lead to this uh, being in touch with the higher spirit world? Or is it more that he actually suffered physical ailments to such a degree that when you try a drug that can relieve you of pain, we, I, I think we have to appreciate the degree to which people who are in chronic pain, if they can uh, have a drug administered to them that will relieve them even momentarily of that pain, it feels like bliss. It mm-hmm. feels like beatitude. It feels like paradise. Yeah. It might be artificial, but they'll take it. And it could be that De Quincey's first um, experience of opium was that of, of the alleviation of pain. Yeah. And then subsequently, when you're pain-free, then you can in, indulge in the luxury mm-hmm. of trying to see how high you can get in terms of reaching the realm of the gods. Yeah. So what's, what's interesting in what you say is that there are maybe two altered states here. So one is the the altered state of being in pain that opium ends momentarily and the altered state of taking the drug. So that's actually what I'm trying to do in this book is to bring together these diverse narratives about altered states in, in ways that, that show how they speak together. Seemingly unlike experiences can, can speak to each other. So the the quote there's a quote from um, Confessions of an English Opium Eater from De Quincey where he explains how he felt the first time he took opium. He says, "I took it, and in an hour, oh heavens, what a revulsion! What an upheaving from its lowest depths of the inner spirit! What an apocalypse of the world within me!" That my pains had vanished was now a trifle in my eyes. This negative effect was swallowed up in the immensity of those positive effects which had opened before me, in the abyss of divine enjoyment thus suddenly revealed. So those two things come together, not only the alleviation of pain and suffering, but then the opening up of this inner illuminated world. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting from many points of view. The first is he speaks about the negative effects versus the positive effects. And to speak about alleviation of pain as negative is interesting. It makes me think of Arthur Schopenhauer, whose argument, his nihilistic argument for why life is um, this constant state of suffering that um, can never be 
equilibrated with the pleasure is that pleasure, he, he calls pleasure a negative state. It's our ordinary state. It's what we, the state we're in when we are pain-free, but we don't notice it because it, it's common and therefore it doesn't register in, in our minds. Whereas when, when we're in pain, that is a positive state because it disrupts the equilibrium of the ordinary state and we feel it very intensely. And therefore, there is uh, always the necessary outcome of our experience of these things is that the, the paradise that we inhabit on an everyday basis, insofar as we are relatively healthy and pain-free, is one that we're denied because it is the common state. And that pain then takes on an inordinate sort of uh, tragic, tragic aspect because of that. The other thing is that you wonder that drug use of that sort of opium, for example, so it alleviates the pain, it gives you uh, metaphysical insight and so forth, but it, the, the use itself also engenders new levels of pain mm -hmm. through the addiction, withdrawal, and so forth. So in that sense... It just reminds us of the fact that we are not gods. I suppose uh, you go back to the Greeks and Romans who had a sense that the gods, the difference between gods and mortals is that maybe the gods can remain in a permanent high and a permanent state of the kind of bliss that we can taste through drug use, but without having, but they don't have to pay the price of pain mm -hmm. that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So these are the two things that you're interested in, I guess. Yeah, and maybe we'll come back to this when we talk about Michaud, but Michaud distinguishes between the overdose experience and the drug experience. And so the overdose experience, there's no knowledge that comes back from that experience. And there, the self is lost entirely to the overwhelming void of experience. Whereas in these in these altered states, there can be some sort of moment of, of revelation. And, and you see that, as you said, with, with De Quincey. So he thinks, like Baudelaire, that opium leads towards these feelings of the divine, to serenity, the majestic intellect. They have these architectural characters. So he was friends with uh, Coleridge and Wordsworth. And, but then the, the last section, or the, the later sections of, of the autobiography of the work, are about the pains of opium, as it were. And as you mentioned... So in 1813, he writes that that's when he became truly addicted. So before he was just using it here and there and to alleviate his pain. Um, but he was distressed by the death of Wordsworth's young daughter. Um, so that's part of it, too, is that it was the, part of the psychological pain that led him to be taking more and more and more opium. And even he, so in the beginning, he says, oh, it doesn't affect my ability to be an intellectual, to think about German metaphysics, and I, I can still do that. But he talks about these four years of torpor where every any sort of intellectual activity was unsupportable and he lost all of his sensibilities, but without um, a lingering sense that he was neglecting his responsibilities and his potential. So this is part of the deep pain of addiction that he, he details later in the book. That reminds me of something Faulkner said when he was asked why he drinks so much. And he answered, for the pain, mm -hmm. which almost everyone takes to mean that he drank in order to uh, get rid of the pain, mm -hmm. although you could look at it differently and say he, he drank in order to perpetuate the pain because it was through the pain that he was writing mm -hmm. uh, the novels that he wrote. And I'm wondering if you have that experience of bliss in the first moment of, of the alleviation of pain, 
that continuing to induce these states of pain that can then be alleviated momentarily is what you're really addicted to. But that's a, that's a speculation I'm going to put aside. Michaela, before we move on to Michaud, Henri Michaud is an interesting person that you've done a lot of work on. Mm-hmm. I'd like to quote something that you brought my attention to from De Quincey, where he writes, I may affirm that my life has been on the whole the life of a philosopher. From my birth, I was made an intellectual creature, and intellectual in the highest sense my pursuits and pleasures have been. Even from my schoolboy days, if opium eating be a sensual pleasure, and if I am bound to confess that I have indulged in it to an excess not yet recorded of any other man, it is no less true that I have struggled against this fascinating enthrallment with religious zeal and have at length accomplished what I have never yet attributed to any other man, have untwisted almost to his final links the accursed chain which fettered me. So two questions. He brings in this fact of being a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And elsewhere in the book, he connects the, the, the experience of opium to an enhancement of the philosophical lucidity right. and met- metaphysical insight, and that it actually helps the philosopher in his vocation as a philosopher. And on the other hand, he's also claiming that it's only by being a philosopher that he could rise above the tremendous difficulty of, of uh, freeing yourself from your addiction to this mm-hmm. drug. Right? Yeah. So he he has a quote where he says, if it's um, paraphrasing here, but if you're a man that talks of oxen and you take opium, then you'll just dream of oxen. <laughs> um, but he's a philosopher, so when he takes opium, he's is revealed the the nature of reality and the nature of man. So he, I think this is a really important piece that for De Quincey and Baudelaire and Michaud, they all see themselves as apart from the common man. So they have this special sensibility, whether it be philosophic or artistic or um, intellectual that, that makes it so that taking these drugs, it's not just that anyone could take them and, and have these philosophic revelations, but rather their, their special training as, as intellectuals or as philosophers make it so that the opium dreams have these metaphysical revelations within them. Um, but the other part that you mentioned where he claims that he's accomplished this throwing off of the chains of addiction it's it's probable that he was still addicted when he finished writing this text. So I think there's this desire to have this narrative of success, of accomplishing intellectual clarity after the the period of addiction. But it's likely that he still was taking opium when he wrote that. And also th- throughout his whole life, no? Right, yeah. right. Great. Well, can we move on to Henri Michaud? This yeah. is someone that... Many of our, our listeners might not have even heard of, and he's also an important uh, protagonist in the experimentation of mind-altering substances. So maybe you could tell us something about who Henri Michaud was and what his relation to, to um, mescaline in particular. Sure. So Michaud was born in, in Namur, Belgium in 1899. He traveled a lot. He was traveling in... Um, Japan and China and India early in in the 30s, um, but he was an, he was naturalized French in 1955, and between 1956 and 1966, so this period of 10 years, he wrote these experimental texts on mescaline, on his use of mescaline. He was also influenced by the poet Maudit, so people like Baudelaire and Le Tréamont. And and Rimbaud as well, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as Buddhism and calligraphy, uh, the graphic arts. So 
what I think is is really interesting about Michaud is his take on mescaline. So he's very interested in this psychedelic that is naturally occurring in the peyote cactus and its use among uh, Native Americans in these religious ceremonies as an entheogen, so as a drug that would generate the divine within. What Michaud wants to do is to take this drug, to take mescaline, but outside of any religious or cultural context and see what is revealed to him. And his texts, they're they're interesting because they don't just try to put words to a sort of unimaginable experience, but they also have this style of montage where they try to generate the feeling of those experiences for the reader. And so he was interested in writing too. So a lot of the mescaline texts include his sketches that he took he does while he's on these these drugs. And he he tries to relate the effects on the first person subject position as it were. So you mentioned that he wanted, Michel wanted to take the religious context out of the experience and just try this mescaline on his own in solitary in order to observe what its effects are on the isolated self. Mm -hmm. And yet in the, um, in an article that you wrote on Michel that I have in front of me, you say that he Michaud attempts to track down the metaphysical piece of personal identity that persists through altered states. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like he might be trying to get rid of the religious framework, but that there is still something religious at work here, which is what you call that metaphysical piece of personal identity, that there's something in the self that is uh, beyond the physical. Mm-hmm. He, he wouldn't want to call it supernatural necessarily, but he's trying to get in touch with it. Am I getting you right there? Yeah. He he really wants to try to figure out what is this witness position? Like who is still there to witness these experiences and what remains when you take away all these layers of nationality and personality and you you reduce the the self down to the bare bones? What what still remains there of the subject position? And he ultimately thinks that these mescaline experiences mutate the self. That's what I argue in in the book and in this article that you quoted. He thinks that these mescaline experiments are like a lightning that lasts. So something that changes this metaphysical witness position and leads to a, a different self in the end, if only slightly illuminated. No, I get that. But if you take the traditional definition of identity as self-sameness through time, then he would be looking also for something constant through these successive moments that make up Mm -hmm. the chronological unfolding of time. Mm -hmm. And identity has been a a mysterious, enigmatic phenomenon Mm -hmm. for philosophers, too. How is it that something can remain uh, itself, self-same through time, even though it undergoes various Mm -hmm. modifications through time? Is that self, for Michaud, something that is somehow beyond the laws of nature? Mm -hmm. Does it have a metaphysical or, I don't want to call it religious or divine, Mm -hmm. uh, subjectivity, but is there something there that defies chronology Mm -hmm. or the experience of time as one moment after another after another successively? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in some ways those worries and those questions are not, are not new ones. So, I mean, it, it goes back earlier than this, but Locke is very worried about 
altered states and um, to drunkenness as his example. So who who witnesses the the drunken state? And it used to be God that solved that problem. So God sees the entirety of your your I, your narrative existence as a self and, and keeps track of all those moments. So even if you aren't fully conscious or you have an, you're in this altered state of consciousness, there's somebody with a, an objective perspective and that, that person is God. But what Michaud does, I think, is substitutes knowledge for the divine. So he thinks that he can be both observer and observed, and he's going to keep track of that that witness position, even during altered states. So that's something that's that's new for for Michaud. And he's different than Baudelaire in that he's he writes albeit in a fictional mode in, in one of his fictions from from the thirties, he says that um we're not a um we're not an era for paradise. We're not a people for paradise. That that paradise isn't what he's after. He's after knowledge rather than pleasure or these paradises that, that Baudelaire was writing about. But can I ask about Freud's uh, presence or non-presence in Michaud? Clearly, Michaud, is, this is, we're talking about the post-war period, in the heyday of Freudianism, mm-hmm. 50s, 60s, so forth. And Freud famously you know, divides the psyche between mm-hmm. the id, the ego, the superego. The ego, in Freud's theory, and in certain philosophies, you mentioned John Locke, but there are others that it seems, if I understand correctly, that Michaud believed that it was the ego that serves the unifying purpose. Is that what unifies the self as such? And that the process of unselfing, I'm quoting you, mm-hmm. operates as a two-step process and undoes the ego's unifying power. Now, if and when that is successful, that you undo the ego's unifying power, what is there there? Mm-hmm. of the self. Yeah. So Michaud had read Freud and he was interested in psychiatry and psychology, but he was dubious of, of Freud's analyses. And he's Michaud has been since read as a proto-psychoanalyst or read in that mode. And he definitely uses the term ego throughout his work. But he he's more influenced by people like Darwin. So he thinks that there's this more primordial self or atavistic um, inner self. And he's interested in getting at that primordial universal language. Is it an unconscious self or is it conscious? I mean, I think he he has a theory of the unconscious, but there's some slippage. This is part of the difficulty of the methodology in the in the project is that I come to the to the project with my own network of terms around selfhood. So I talk about the experiencing self, which you could think of as the synchronic perspective, the moment in time and the remembering self. So the self across time or the diachronic perspective on selfhood and look at look at the the interconnection or these two steps that that generate selfhood and obviously each writer doesn't necessarily talk about selfhood in those terms and and Michaud has his own um, network of terms about selfhood and so he does talk about the unconscious and he has a sort of problematic he his his work gives credence to theories of hysteria the unconscious might be some sort of feminine uncanny unconscious so but that's not what's at stake, I would argue, in the in the mescaline experiment. So, what it, what he wants to do is to remain conscious of these these experiments and detail not only experience, but what's what's revealed to him and what alters, if only slightly, this little piece of the self that lasts. 
Right. So he's holding tight to the theoretical mm-hmm, uh, attitude. <laughs> and he's not, uh, from the point of view of the merry pranksters, I hope we get a chance to talk about them. Uh, uh, the, right. That, that he's not just letting it happen. The way no. The way the merry prankster, Ken Kesey and the others thought that even Timothy Leary, whom we're going to move to now, uh, that, that there was too much observational, right. uh, clinical gazing at, at an experience that was defeating the purpose of it, no? Yeah, so he says, those who take drugs in order to surrender themselves to the collective release and emotional abandon need not read further. Right. There is nothing here there that is meant for them. We do not speak in the same language. We do not look for the same effects. He who is incapable of keeping his actions under control, incapable of confining everything to the mind, has missed the point completely. So you see there, there, there he's far go. from a prankster. <laughs> no, no, he's far. And he, he might have been Belgian-born, but um, Belgian, and then became French. But he is fiercely Cartesian <laughs> in, a certain, in a certain way because he, he, it's all about mind. And this ego that is not going to dissolve, the ego sum, is not going to dissolve into this kind of universal oneness of a cosmic order that some not theories of drug use, but some practices, mm-hmm. even among the Native Americans and sh- shamanism, and maybe in the counterculture of the 60s, there was a sense that you could actually dissolve the ego and and allow this collective unconscious to um, be, be your place of habitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he is interested in this dissolving of, of the ego or dissolving of the self, but he wants this to happen outside of culture, or he wants this to happen, he wants to try to find out what this non-cultural or non-influenced version of this would be, So, which to us might seem a little bit naive. So he really, in, in a sense, wants to escape culture and have this all happen in the theater of the mind. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it seems all a little bit anemic to me in the sense that if it's removing community also from the equation. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he wants this experience without Dionysus. Mm-hmm. He, he, wants, he wants Apollo to explore what happens to Apollo uh, under the effects of mescaline. Mm-hmm. But the whole point is that when Dionysus is present, either in the drug or in wine, that it's the collective confusion of boundaries, the, the overcoming of the boundaries of individuation. And this mm-hmm. de-individuation, that experience of de-individuation, he seems not to be particularly interested in. Yeah. Right. Scared of it, probably. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing for him is that a new expanse has opened up, a new inner hollow depth. And it doesn't really lead to these new intersubjective experiences. So it doesn't really change the way that he approaches others and others don't really figure in the mescaline texts. So this leads us to the use of drugs in the counterculture in the sixties and especially to, uh, you know, one of the gurus of the LSD experimentation of Timothy Leary, well known to most people who um, in many ways uh, I think is on the same wavelength with Michaud, to a certain extent, no, because Timothy Leary's uh, experiment, experiments with LSD, it was observer and observed uh, maintaining a co-presence in the experience. Is that... Mm-hmm. Uh, in that way, yeah. I think he's definitely similar to Michaud in that way, as well as the sort of pseudo-medical language that is used to talk about these altered states. That's similar, too. But what's different is that Michaud is still a poet or still uh, a writer, an artist, and he has that sensibility. Whereas Leary, I think he thinks that there's a, there are literal correlates between altered states and 
what is revealed. So he thinks that the findings of astronomy, physics, biochemistry, neurology, they're all literally revealed by these um, these drug experiments. So, And he also wants this to be happening on a large scale. So whereas Michaud experiments on himself and he remains entrenched and he's this witness character, Leary wants this to be happening on a mass widespread level. Right. And who knows, could be that the wackier aspects of his theory eventually will um, prove to be fruitful for some experimentations. We did a show on the singularity about um, where human consciousness will meld eventually with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and, and information technology in order to give a hugely exponential, explosive uh, expansion of consciousness. And it could be that um, those seven basic spiritual questions that Leary laid down about ultimate power, namely, what is the cosmic plan, the life question, what mm-hmm. is life, human being question, what is man, the awareness of question, how do we know, the ego question, who am I, the emotional question, what should I feel about, the ultimate escape question, how do I get out of it? All this can probably be recuperated and appropriated in in some kind of artificial way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as you mentioned, the atomic cellular level and so forth, it's it's all interesting. Well, it's very neat. So he thinks that there's certain drugs that will turn on each of these levels that you mentioned. So at the the worst would be the the escape question, getting out of it. So heavy um, drinking or narcotics and these sort of just anesthetize the sensibility for these revealed realms. But then at the top of the list is the, the what is the cosmic plan question can be answered by strong psychedelics or by LSD. So it seems like you just pick the thing that you want revealed to you and then take the, the pill that's prescribed. <laughs> right. And if the singularity ever comes about, it could very well be that you choose your, uh, you know, your spiritual question, you take that pill and you, <laughs> and you got it. And then the next day, another one. <laughs> right. Yeah. So how, how much of the 60s is actually inextricably imbricated with drug, this kind of drug use? I mean, I think there's this utopic notion that maybe taking these psychedelics could solve a lot of social ills. So the, the question of community is much stronger in this context. Um, so you could read that as a, a contrast with what we saw with Michaud, even though his writing is is during the same period that Leary's doing his LSD experiments. But I think this hope in for this radical sense of empathy um, that might come out of taking taking these drugs might have been a little bit over overblown or overstated, um, especially given the the worries that come out of these earlier accounts. So the the worries about addiction or the worries about pain or the pain of others. So I'm, I think the there's the all these hopes for maybe the uses of psychedelics in um, in terms of social ills or social problems. But Leary himself found himself on the wrong side of history. So he thought that LSD cured. Innsberg of his homosexuality, for example. So I think he he thought that this could solve anything, and he wasn't really sure what he was even applying it to. He got a lot into a lot of trouble also mm-hmm. career-wise. He, he got fired from Harvard, I believe. Right. Yeah, so he was fired from his lecturer position mm-hmm. in clinical psychology. His colleague, Richard Alpert, was fired in 63 um, for giving LSD to an under, undergraduate outside of class. Right. Um, 
So after his after he loses this university affiliation, the experiments change and they become more of what we would think of as a party or they they lose this worry about the observational right. component. Yeah, I think it becomes more fun in, <laughs> in that sense. And maybe we should mention two things that have to do with where we're speaking from, which is Stanford University, mm-hmm. Palo Alto, Menlo Park. One, and the Bay Area in general, one is that in 1967, it's the 50th anniversary of the so-called human be-in, mm-hmm. that, uh, where Timothy Leary famously told this crowd in Golden Gate Park, I believe it was Golden Gate Park, Turn, turn on, on, tune in, tune in and drop out. Drop out. Yeah, that's right. right. Famous uh, motto now. Yeah. The other thing is that there was a very distinctive California kind of drug culture, different from the brainy Harvard, you know, almost clinical theorizing sort. And right here at Stanford, where Ken Kesey was a Stegner fellow in the early 60s, he and his famous acid tests and the Kool-Aid, where they would spike the Kool-Aid with acid. And, mm. and Thomas Wolfe wrote that famous novel about the the electric Kool-Aid tests. And the Grateful Dead, another very local band. Listen, people don't know this, but the Grateful Dead had their per- first real um, performance right here in KZSU. They were a, Men- <laughs> they were a Menlo Park band, and I think... Uh, uh, Jerry Garcia, with one or two of the other future members of Grateful Dead, actually came here and 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 did some kind of performance that was aired back in the uh, early '60s. Ken Kesey was there in on Perry Lane with uh, other fellows, experimentation, and and then moved to La Honda. And these merry pranksters, as they were known, with their psychedelically painted bus called <laughs> Further, they were very untheoretical about it. They mm-hmm. just thought it's something that you let happen without either over-theorizing or, or over-ideologizing what you were doing, mm-hmm. because that was the whole point, is to be in an altered state of mind. And the hell with the bridges between the altered and the unaltered state mm-hmm. of mind, which is very much like a Grateful Dead concert. The Grateful Dead continued to perform at Stanford year after year because it was um, one of their first venues. And I've never been a deadhead mm-hmm. myself, but you go to one of those and you and you see that it's an experience, a mind-altering experience. Not everyone necessarily uh, having smoked smoked pot or, or or taken LSD. It could just be the music that gets you into this kind of dream state for two to three hours that uh, is on a completely different plane. And when it's over, it's over, and it's just something that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a very different sort of ambition. Mm-hmm. And when the Merry Pranksters got in their bus with great enthusiasm to go and visit Timothy Leary, mm-hmm. these, and Timothy Leary, when he saw these crazy Californians <laughs> arrive at his, uh, his house, he forbade them any entry. Mm-hmm. They had to wait. You know, they, they didn't get to see him. Uh, because I, I think that, you know, we Californians we forget the degree to which we are viewed somewhat as outlaws on the other coast, mm-hmm. despite you know all the political sympathies we might share in common. There's a very different kind of MO. Yeah, um, the emphasis on trance or the emphasis on this group altered state seems pretty foreign from Leary's strict experimentation, at least in the early days. Definitely. And there's, a, there's also, so you have the great, you know, psychedelic bands of uh, the Jefferson Airplane, 
Grateful Dead and Love. There was a Velvet Underground from New York that you can't um, not include them in, in you know in that list. But um, good. Is there anything that you you want to add to this California chapter? <laughs> uh, are you going to go that far in your book? I think. I, w- I will just reference maybe the, the contemporaries to Michaud. The, the book is all on uh, French language writers, French and Francophone authors from diverse contexts. So, I mean, Michaud had read some of what Leary was doing, and so this is a, an important um, context to consider. But I think you're right. I think there are very different cultural contexts that make it so that these these two groups were very it was very difficult for them to even speak to each other even though they had what we see as similar aims and i think now when we when we think about something like a human being or turn on tune in and drop out i think the the level of engagement of of young people is is something that people worry about so i don't think the question is do we need more people to to drop out. I think it's trying to get people to wake up. Oh, so it seems like we're up against something different today. And that's what this show is all about. Right. Trying to wake us up. That's right. <laughs> well, that's great. So um, thanks a lot, Michaela. We'll look forward to uh, continuing this conversation when you get further along in publication of the book. Remind our listeners, we've been speaking with Michaela Hulstein from Stanford. I'm Robert Harrison for Entitled Opinions. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be with you again next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Chasing rabbits.